what is off the groove? It means you've blown the line or you're pushing the limits a little bit too far or just maybe you might be looking for a faster way around the racetrack. Off the Groove with Scotty Dubler. Back to back to back interviews here on Off the Groove. Yep, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. But before we get into this last of the three episodes, I want to talk about this tweet that you got last week. Guess who Guess who hit me up on Thursday night? Oh, I know who hit you up on Thursday night. I want to talk I'm about ta- it. I was, I was talking to the people that are listening. Oh, sorry. I'm sure they're asking. Who? The Kentucky Mudflap. We haven't had anybody call in lately, here. but the Kentucky Mudflap hit me up on Twitter and said, word on the wire is Scotty Dubler just hit one year mark. He said he's going to pour a keystone out for the guy. <laughs> Pour out a keystone, <laughs> Kentucky. Thanks, buddy. Now, we've got a lot of love from that, man. Like, I, even, you know, all the riders obviously called in and congratulated you. But even after the episode, I mean, we had a couple more, which I've added to the episode, by the way. Vander Coy. Oh, cool. I haven't, I haven't heard that. Yeah, no. Vander Coy and who? Uh, Jordan Graham called in. Dude, I'm still impressed with everybody that called in. Yeah, and Max it's, Whale it's, even called in all the way from, from Australia, Australia to, to say something. So there, I've added all them to the episode. If you called in and you didn't hear yourself in the initial episode and you're a little upset, go back and listen. You're now in there. Now i got to listen to it again. You do. And everybody else does. We, we like the listens. Um, so you know what was cool? What, what was, was cool? cool is Graham... Graham called in, but we've had her call in before, but mm-hmm. Haley called in, my little girl, and, yeah. and I thought that was really cool. Even though her voice is at the beginning of every episode, I don't know if anybody right. knows Right, but that. she's like, no, no, nobody really knows that, but she's, they do uh, now. She's, not, she's not quite as outgoing as I am. Yeah, that was cool. Um, and, you know, we definitely appreciate the love, and uh, that's why we do it. So. All right. Three of three on sunday yeah and i i don't want to say we've saved the best for last because i think all three of these people are badasses in what they do and they're all supporting flat track but michael lawless is a badass well like you said we're covering people that cover the sport and they all three do it in a different way right no i think uh you got your film you got your broadcast announcing and then you got your writer he's a writer and a writer oh i see what you did there i I hear what you did there because this is a podcast so I didn't know he used to race. And yeah. He rides a lot, it sounds like. Yeah. And I mean, I would say he knows just about as much about motorcycles as uh, Jackie Van Ham. He uh, he was throwing out some terminology there that, that a rookie like me is just like, I don't even know what that means. He's worked with some, some very unique people. He's published in magazines. And now he's doing his own blogs, and I, you know, my hat's off to him for for doing what he's doing. This guy knows these flat trackers inside and out, and he's got a lot of cool stories. Um, he's written about some of them, some of them he's just going to tell us about for the first time. Um, it's pretty cool to hear all of them, though. Well, let's give him a call. Let's do it. Hello. Is this the Electric Horseman? Hey, Scotty Dubler, powered by Dr. Pepper. How are you, young man? Uh, I am great, Michael Lawless. Uh, haven't seen you since the, the New Jersey race. You've been doing all right? Doing great. Raced Timonium last weekend. Had a little fun. Gotta love it. Life is good. You raced that little bitty tight bull ring? Yeah, this year I managed not to crash. The last two years in a row I had a, I broke my collarbone, knocked myself out the year before, and last year, year before last I broke my arm there. Congratulations on keeping on two wheels. Oh, thank you. I, I, you know, I love it down there, but it's kind of a little bit unforgiving sometimes. 
All right. Well, uh, this last couple of episodes, we've been getting to know people that do different things for our sport, writing, announcing, reporting, and you do a really cool blog. So we want to reach out to you and get to know the man behind the Electric Horseman. So we'll talk about the Electric Horseman a little bit, but first, let's get to know you. So where were you born? Uh, Norristown, Pennsylvania, right okay. outside of Philly. All right. And you grew up in Pennsylvania? Sure did. Okay. So how did you get into motorcycles? Well, um, you ever watch the movie Talladega Nights? Of course. My dad was like Reese Bobby. He'd show up. My parents were divorced when I was two. He would show up at random hours with sports cars he'd buy and sell. This is side business. So one time he showed up with a motorcycle, and he took me for a ride, and I was like eight or nine years old. And I'll never forget the smell of people's grass was freshly cut and hot dogs cooking on the grill. And I thought, wow, motorcycles are awesome. Like in a car, you're watching TV, but on a motorcycle, you're like right in the middle of scene. So I was hooked on motorcycles. And then when I got older, uh, I got out of high school. My brother-in-law had a motorcycle, and I thought, I want to buy a motorcycle. So I was working on my own. I was out of high school. I told my mother. My mother said to me, if you buy a motorcycle, you will not be living here. People of our caliber do not ride motorcycles. So I listened to her very carefully. The next day, I went out and I bought my first motorcycle. Wow. Honda Ascot five, FT500. And back in those years, like an Ascot's kind of an okay motorcycle now. It's kind of like coming back in style. But back then, it was probably the most uncool motorcycle you will have back in the mid-'80s. Mid-'80s, you had to have a motorcycle to fairing if you were a sport bike guy. Mm-hmm. And the Ascot was kind of a bit of a square peg. And when my mom found out I bought a motorcycle, she pulled me aside. So I heard you bought a motorcycle. And I said, yes, I did. She said, well, either you will sell tomorrow or move out. So I moved out. I was old enough and went out on my own. I've been riding motorcycles ever since. It's the only thing constant in my life. That's incredible. That's that's a story in itself right there. I I mean, to put your motorcycle ahead of living at your mom's house, I mean, that that shows the true passion of motorcycles right there. Well, you know, I got involved with sport bike riding. Like most of my friends' dads bought them, you know, like 500 interceptors and GPV 550s, and they were much faster than my bike. But I read this book on high-performance car driving by Bob Bondurant, and it talked about line technique and, you know, being in the right gear at the right time and stuff like that, and I applied it to riding the motorcycle, and I was faster than my friends, and after a while, it was the first time in my life I could do something better than my friends could, if you know what I mean. And Absolutely. Uh, my friends were like, you're going to kill yourself. You're going to hurt yourself. You're going too fast. And by the time I was probably 24, 25, I totaled five or six different street bikes and Ooh. kind of, <laughs> kind of living the wildlife, having fun. But, you know, that's life. And then so you got into road racing right after, shortly after that, after you bought your first bike? I got involved in my, – my brother John started riding shortly after I did, and he got involved with vintage motorcycles and vintage motorcycle racing back then. This is almost you know, 25, 30 years ago. So one morning, he said, let's get together on a Sunday morning. We'll go for a ride. And I was supposed to meet him at 6 o'clock, and I was too hungover to get out of bed. And he was banging on my door, and he said, come on, we're going to ride. And I thought, oh, Christ. He ends up um, taking me out with this guy, and this guy kept saying, dude, you're going to kill yourself on the road. You're, you're crazy. You're just – he seemed to go road racing. I thought, well, leave me alone. But eventually what ended up happening was um, him and I talked. It turns out this guy won a couple of regional championships road racing, and he invited me to ride his backup motorcycle at Summer Point, West Virginia. I went down there. I did really well. And then he asked me after the race, he said, there's three things you need to do. 
you need to lose that girlfriend of yours you were with. He said, you need to start hitting the gym. And he said, you need to quit drinking. And I'd rather, you know, I didn't want to quit drinking and partying and living that life. So I stayed at it. You know, I, I kept riding sport bikes. I ended up getting married. Eventually I learned to get my life together, had a daughter, was riding sport bikes all that time. I worked for Fast by Farachi for a while there, service manager, had a great experience working with Mr. Farachi, amazing man. So you got some road race experience, continued to ride on the street. So how did you get involved in flat track? Well, I got involved with, well, actually what happened was I started, I got involved with writing magazine articles. I met this guy who was starting an online motorcycle sport bike magazine. We were friends. I asked him, I said, hey, do you need a hand writing any magazine articles or something? He said, hey, bro, it's an urban motorcycle magazine. You're not urban. <laughs> so I was like, all right. <laughs> So I bumped him a few months later, and um, he asked me, how am I doing? I said, well, I'm, I'm going to be a judge at Ratner Hunt Concourse, the Elegance. He said, you should, you know, come along. Maybe I can get you a media pass. Perhaps you could write an article on it. Add, like, you know, an elegant, you know, air of motorcycling to your motorcycle magazine. He said, I like the idea, but I'm tied up that day. So I said, well, it's fun. I could do it for you. And he said, well, I give you credit. You got heart. Write me four or 500 words. Get me some professional photographs. And... Uh, We'll see how it goes. So I started writing motorcycle magazines for him. Then he came to me and said, we need to find an article on things for sport bike riders to do over the wintertime. So my brother, John, had been telling me about this indoor winter motorcycle race in Timonium, Maryland for years. I never had the free time to go out and check it out. I figured now's the time. To me, motorcycle racing as a sport bike guy was like Mugello, like the Italian Grand Prix or the Isle of Man. Motorcycle racing was surely not in a warehouse in Baltimore, but we went down to Baltimore. It was really awesome. I had an amazing time. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Those guys like opposite lock sideways, dragging the foot pegs, spinning the back tires, banging elbows. It was just like overload. It was so awesome. Called him back the next day and said, hey, we got to do a series of articles on this. The most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. I've never been to a short track race before or a flat track race, and I was blown away. Somebody listened to me very carefully and said, so let me get this right. You want to run an article with a bunch of guys riding dirt bikes inside a warehouse in Baltimore in the middle of wintertime. And I'm like, yep. And he said, no way. No way. Dude, it is so awesome. I want to do it. And he said, hold, hold up. You want to do it? I said, yeah, I want to do it. And he said, well, I'll tell you what. You find some young bull to teach you flat track racing. Then you can write some articles in that. And we'll, we'll publish those articles. I said, okay, no problem. I hung up the phone with him. I thought to myself, I don't know anybody in flat track racing, zero. So I called my older brother, John, who's terrific. And um, I said, John, do you know anybody in, in the flat track world? And he said, yeah, I know this guy named um, Robin Oswald. And I'll ask Robin to put some feelers out and see if he knows anybody. And Robin was the kind of guy who, if you said, you know, I want to build a hill climber or a flat track or a road racer, he would say, Give me a check. The bigger the check, the faster you go. He's one of those kind of guys. Great right. guy. So he also reached out to his family called the McGranges, who my brother helped sell some motorcycles at his yearly auction. Well, I'm driving home from work that night, and the phone rings. And young man, you know, says, hi, my name is Jake. I'm Saddleman Rookie of the Year, and I won Springfield. And he starts telling me all these amazing stories. And this guy's really cool. And it was Jake Shoemaker. And that's how I met Jake Shoemaker. So... Jake agreed to meet me on a Sunday morning, and I borrowed someone's XR100 so I could ride with Jake, and I could learn a little bit what flat track racing was. And that was the first time I ever rode off-road, really. Um, 
you know, by the way, as a typical sport bike rider, I'm hanging off the bike the wrong way. I'm doing everything wrong. And Jake pulls me aside and says, here, put your elbow here, put your leg there, do this, do that. I'm like, huh, oh, it's pretty cool. Okay. So I'm riding around. Every time Jake would get near me, I'd veer off the track because my editor told me, don't get him hurt. His season begins today, Daytona in six weeks or so. And if he gets hurt, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill you. So I was like, all right, all right. So Shoemaker sees me veering out of the way. He said, what are you doing? And I said, well, my editor told me, don't get tangled up and get you hurt. And he looked at me and was like, dropped in like gunfighter mode. I can handle myself. I was like, okay. So the next time we're going down the front straight, I just shut the door on him. And he just ran right into me. Boom. He hits me like runs me from the inside line to the outside line. As I'm fumbling around, he roosts me and takes off. And the <laughs> photographer was there, was laughing so hard, he had tears rolling down his face. He completely mugged me. So as I'm fumbling around, Shoemaker comes ripping by me, wheeling, and he yells, oh, he hit me, he hit me. And he's just laughing. I'm like, oh, you son of a gun. And I realized then we were friends. That's awesome. So that's how I became friends with Jake Shoemaker and how I started riding the dirt. And that day we went to a um, typical flat tracker moment. We went to Applebee's afterward. I think Jake Shoemaker even got the waitress's phone number if memory serves. We had a great night together. <laughs> Jake's terrific. And then I started, you know, I went to Timonium with Jake. And Jake loaned me uh, an XR, I think an XR 100, XR, something like that, a small bike. And I rode it X, uh, the, my first indoor short track race. Matter of fact, Johnny Lewis was there, Nick Henderson, uh, Jason Eisenach, uh, Chris Kleinfelder, all those guys were there. It was really cool to watch the pros and be sitting among them and hear their stories as they were talking. So that's how I kind of got involved with flat track. And that's how I got involved with, you know, watching these guys. And then I started writing stories for the magazine about me trying to learn how to do flat track racing. Wow, it just kind of all fell together, it sounds like. It did, and then to repay Jake, I wrote an article about Jake, and that did okay. And then I met this guy with Jake. Jake had um, raced at the Mega Mile, and he finished second to Brian Smith. It was an amazing ride. So after the race, Jake looked at his guys and said, all right, stakes are on me. Let's go out to dinner. It was awesome. And he took us out to dinner. And I sat catacorn with a guy named Henry Wiles. I knew who Henry Wiles was. But, you know, I heard all these things about him, but he was nothing like they told me. He was really super cool, you know? So I met Henry Wiles, and a while later, months later, I was racing at um, York on the half mile. And I got there the night before. I slept in my pickup truck so I wouldn't miss the opening of, you know, I wouldn't miss the opening of the uh, pits and stuff. I'd get there early, something Mike Sponseller taught me to do. Went to fire up the bike, and it wouldn't start. My old SR500, I'm running, I'm kicking, I'm jumping, I'm praying, and the bike wouldn't start. I thought, oh, man, this, this can't be. I've, I've waited all week for this. And I thought, well, it's God's will. So I watched the race. My Jarrett was there and Jake and a bunch of the fast guys from Pennsylvania there, and, and Henry Wiles was there. And I remember sitting in the grandstands, and someone told me, well, Henry doesn't win in places like this. Henry wins, you know, a TT track. He doesn't, this isn't his thing. Okay. Well, Henry checked out and won that day. Wow. So I thought, wow, I watched the race. And it was really awesome. And then after the race, I said, you know, goodbyes to my friends and was hanging out for a little bit. And just as I'm walking back to my truck, I hear this guy say, hey, mister, did you ever get your bike running? I turn around, it's Henry Wiles. It's like, holy smokes. Like, that would never happen in the road race for the guy who won the road race. He's now talking to you after the race with your broken bike. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you think about it, I'm a, I'm a guy with an old ratty pickup truck, and I'm an old guy a broken race bike nothing fancy and this the guy who won the race walks over and starts talking to me amazing right mm-hmm. so we talked for five or six minutes and as he turns around you know matter of fact he even said to me 
you know, keep at it, keep going at it, you know, so cool, cool. And uh, he goes to walk away from me. I said, hey, Henry, um, maybe we could do an article on you. I work for a sport bike magazine. He said, yeah, yeah, just, you know, get a hold of me on Facebook. We'll do something. So I thought, okay, great. I pitched my editor about it. And he said, I don't want any articles on dirt track in my sport bike magazine. Okay. It's not going to happen. So I kept badging him, badging him, saying, hey, you know, this Henry Wiles guy, you know, very charismatic. He's funny. He, he'd be perfect for the magazine. He's like, no, 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 no. And then one of the mainstream motorcycle magazines ran an article on Henry. So I called him and said, hey, we could, have, we could have had the jump on these guys if you would let me run that article I want to write about this guy. And he said, I didn't see anything on flat track. And I told him the magazine, the page. And he goes, I just see a guy riding, you know, jumping a motorcycle, wearing motocross gear. I don't see a flat track racer. That gives me insight now on the why American flat track wants you to wear full leathers. Because a guy who did not wear full leathers, my editor thought was just a dirt bike guy yeah. riding motocross. Interesting, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I went down to um, Delaware and I met Henry and Henry and I got talking. He wrote a really nice article. and We were both in the same place in our life. We we're both going through divorce. And I had my daughter, Olivia, with me. It was my weekend to have her. So we hung out with Olive and we had a great time and I had to write the story like the next day. So I had zero time. I had a really awesome photographer, Steve Coltar, shoot some really great pictures. I wrote the article quickly, put it out and the article did really, really well. So my editor said, the only reason your article did well is because Henry Wiles is eye candy to the ladies. And we got a ton of emails from various women, you know, asking about Henry Wiles, by the way. So it was like, he was joking around me like, Hey, if we had six Henry Wiles, we could go into business for ourselves. So I was like, <laughs> very funny. Like I got like zero credit for having a good article out. And mm-hmm. um, at that point in time, I met Sammy Halbert down there, got talking to Sammy. I said, Hey, maybe you and I could do an article. And he said, fine. Keep in mind that was just when Jethro passed. So I ended up hopping a flight to Vegas and that was when they had super prestigio and, you know, the AMA race all at the same venue. Mm-hmm. Got a hold of um, Sammy and practice. Hey, could we go out to dinner afterward? He said, sure. What do you have in mind? Burgers, tacos, and with me, steaks. I'm like, steaks. It is. So <laughs> we went out for steaks. Yeah, it was funny. So we went out mm-hmm. for steaks and um, we're looking at each other and I look over and I realize I have no idea what I'm going to write. None. And no idea, you know, no idea what to do on the interview either. So I look across and I say, Sammy, there's a ghost in the room. And he was saying, what are you talking about? And I said, Sammy, I don't know what to do. I, do we talk about Jethro or we not talk about Jethro? And he looks down at his glass of wine and goes, yeah, we can talk about Jethro. So we talked a bit about Jethro and, you know, he told me then that, you know, he had wished he'd never got involved with racing, which blew me away. And um, I wrote down, there's a line there about, um, about, you know, through his loss, he found strength and kept racing. You know, that article was called True Grit. And um, I wrote that article and that article printed right before Daytona. When I got down to Daytona, um, I bumped in my editor in the, in the uh, pits that day. And my editor was like, he, he grabbed me and gave me a huge hug and was like, your article has 300% more views than any other article in the magazine. Wow. And he goes, there was like you know, super bike articles and there was MotoGP articles and all this great stuff. And Sammy Halbert's article like, like was a landslide number one in the magazine. So once that happened and True Grit went out, then I was, I was given more you know, leeway to start writing more articles. I wrote an article on Jarrett Meese called um, Pay the Cost to Be the Boss. And then I wrote um, 
some other articles for him, non-flat track stuff. And then I was at a, I was, I think, at Springfield or somewhere. And I was usually, you know, you'll see me all over the racetrack. I'll sometimes I'll sit out in the grandstand just to watch things from the, you know, from the fans' perspective. So I was watching Brian Smith. I thought, man, this Brian Smith guy is something else. And um, I'd watch him in the pits, and I watch how the team interacted. And it was like they had a certain air about. Them. I thought, man, these are like like Indy car guys or something. They're like, you know, like the kind of guys you'd imagine working on like AJ Foyt's car, Pirelli Jones car, or something like that. And then what do I find out about those guys? That Gordon Dink and Ricky all work with Indy cars for a living. So it's kind of funny mm-hmm. that you know <laughs> that's what they really are. It's kind of like comical. But I wrote the intro for the Gambler from the grandstands, and um, I pitched Brian. Can I write an article on you? He was like, yeah, yeah, talk to me sometime. We'll, maybe we'll do something. But I kind of had the feeling he wasn't really into it. And then uh, I pitched him a second time, and Jake was standing there. And Jake Shoemaker said, hey, he writes really good stuff. And I felt like now I feel like I had to pull something magic out of my bag of tricks. And I told him, I said, hey, by the way, I wrote the intro for it in case you want to read it. And he said, send it over. And I thought, oh, no. If he doesn't like the intro, guess what? You're done. He's never going to reply to me. Yeah. So – I sent over the intro and nothing happened. I thought, oh man, I blew it. So I thought, let me just call him and find out. I sent over the intro and uh, we talked for a little bit. I said, well, what did you think about it? Do you like it? What's your feelings? He goes, man, you make me sound like I'm some kind of superhero. <laughs> and I said, you are a superhero. Exactly. Don't you watch yourself on track? You, you know? <laughs> right. So at that point, he loosened up and that's when we started talking about some more stuff and we finished up the article. And then, Again, Steve Coulter, the photographer, did an amazing job shooting up in New York. Uh, I sent all the work into my editor, and it was supposed to come out next month. I told Brian it's going to be out next month, and next month this comes out, and there's no Brian Smith article. Ooh. Brian calls me up Monday. He's like, where's the article at? I'm like, I don't know. I called my editor back. And I'm like, hey, um, what happened with Brian Smith's article? And he goes, it's not professional. It's not a motorcycle magazine article. I'm not going to run it. And I was like, oh, my God. You know, I gave my word to Brian. I didn't want to break my trust with Brian. You know, so I was like, oh, no. So I, I, you know, I begged, I pleaded, I stomped my feet, I held my breath. And I was like, dude, you got to put this article out. So he did. And guess what happened? Number one in the magazine again. Boom. The gambler did really, really well. As a matter of fact, one of my friends from the magazine who is uh, involved in the rap world came to me and wanted to do spoken word to the gambler. We never got around to doing that, but that was one of the things that happened. Brian loved it. It did really well. You know, that kind of opened the door for me for a lot of stuff. So all these were in a, in a magazine. So when did you break off and start doing your blog? Well, I went to Santa Rosa and I wrote a, a three-piece section called um, The Triumph and Tragedy of Santa Rosa. And I sent it to my editor and he said to me flatly, I'm not going to run it. And I thought, it's a great piece. And he's like, no, nah, it's, it's too personal. I don't want to do it. Rewrite it over again. So I, I wrote down what was in the magazine. And at that point there, I thought, you know, you, 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 we have some issues where you're not getting me and, you know, you're giving me a hard time. So I basically told him I'm not interested in writing for you any longer. Okay. And that's when the blogging story. I met a young lady named Addie Anonymous. Actually, it's even funnier. I didn't actually even meet her, meet her like you say, like I shook your hand. I um, saw her blog on Facebook, and I messaged her, and we got talking about her blog. And she gave me some tips, and that's how I started blogging. And I love blogging because you have no editor above you. You can put down whatever you want to put down. 
you can be true to your art and not have to, you know, cut it and paste it. You can do it. Like an editor and a writer are like cats and dogs. A good editor can make you sound like you're a rock star. A bad editor will leave in your spelling mistakes and your and your run-on sentences and all the bad things you do and forget about it. Having a good editor is, you know, make or break. Right on. So what was your first piece that you did on your own on your blog? Well, um, I had those three articles from Santa Rosa, which were, you know, the first day was me racing, um, super hooligan racing for Roland Sands and Indian. The second day was Brian Smith winning the championship with the amazing, amazing, amazing victory by Brad Baker. That was the day that Brad Baker ran high, wide and handsome the whole main. And it was just like the most amazing ride I ever watched in my life. I mean, mm-hmm. Brad was like, Brad was like, it was like an Ayrton Senna level performance. It was brilliant, but nobody saw that. They were too busy watching, you know, Jared Meese and Brian Smith. <laughs> like, like right. just watch what Brad Baker just did. But I was super happy for Brian that Brian won the championship. Um, Jared Meese was graceful. And the next, the third part of the article, I actually got a chance to ride Indians FTR 750 the next day, which is comical to itself. My editor called me about that and said, you know, at my day job, and I told him, don't call me at my day job. My boss freaks out. Don't do that. <laughs> so he calls me at my day job and starts talking to me. I'm like, and he said to me, you know, can you go to California? I'm like, you got to pay for my airfare. We're going back and forth. And finally, he says to me, I look up, I see my boss walking over, steam pouring out of his ear. He's like, have you ridden a twin before? And I'm thinking, do you mean pro twin or do you mean like a V twin hooligan bike? So right. before I clarify, it's my boss coming over. I'm like, yes. And I hung up the phone. <laughs> so I get to Santa Rosa. I had no idea I was going to ride the 750 twin. None. I thought they were pulling my leg. Honest to God. Man. So, yes, yeah, so I walk out there that morning. And I look at the bike and I'm, I'm, I look at the bike and I realize, Scotty, there's no shifter on the left hand side. Right. Mm-hmm. On the ride. I never, I never did that in my entire life. I didn't want to let the Indian guys know. I didn't know how to ride their bike, you know. Right. Yeah. So I got a chance to ride that bike, and I had a funny moment with that too. I, um, the first two laps, they had to follow the camera truck, right? So mm-hmm. I'm following the camera truck in second gear, going real slow, like kind of like voguing on the motorcycle, which is kind of embarrassing. And when the camera guy on the, in a pickup truck waved me by, I grabbed a big fistful of throttle and it hit something soft and lit up and then it hit something solid. It just like launched me forward. And I about rear-ended the pickup truck. I just about dead on to torpedo. And those guys reeled back in the truck when they realized I hooked up. And I just, at the last second, I just kind of flicked it hard left and went ripping by. And there's a great photo of me like ripping by the truck. But that was like one of those moments where I realized I just got torpedoed somebody's pickup truck with their, their, you know, brand new factory race bike. And uh, it was the most amazing experience to ride on the mile. And it was amazing to uh, ride a motorcycle that, you know, that serious and focused. It was a real weapon. You know, like I've ridden faster sport bikes. I worked for Fast by Ferracci. I've ridden 200 horsepower motorcycles with electric shift. I've ridden some potent stuff in my time, but I'd never ridden a full on twin flat track race bike. And I will also say though, I think riding a 450 is even more intense than riding a V-twin. Why is that? They're hair triggered. They're just so like twitchy and crazy, you know. Robbie Pearson, AK Bugs, sums up best. He told me uh, they're just plain ignorant, you know, riding a 450. Great line. They're just plain ignorant, and he was right. You know? <laughs> I like that. If you want to, if you want to see Jesus on a motorcycle, you don't have to go to church or hang out with Ray Rizzo. Just ride a, a you know, a, a 450 on a short track, 
and grab a big fistful of throttle. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. like, it's as hairy and twitchy and scary as anything you're going to ride. It's really crazy. I love it, but it's way out of my league. You know, I'm, I am at this point in my life a little bit past my sell-by date. I love to race. It kind of gives me different insight as a writer. Because when you're a writer and you know what it's like to slap the bull in the face, you can mm-hmm. write more about it. You know, the, you know the emotion, you know the passion of what it's like to, to, to race a motorcycle. One of my experiences racing, I went to uh, Gratz, Pennsylvania, and I raced on the half mile. And right before we went out, a racer in you know, the vintage class went off the racetrack, went off a 12-foot embankment, crashed through a cinder block wall. Mm. I wrote an article called Walk the Line. But we had to wait almost an hour for a medevac helicopter to get the guy out. And it was kind of like touch and go whether he was going to make it or not. And... And when all this was going on, the flagman, you know, says, all right, guys, let's go. Time to race. And, like, you know, at that moment, you go, what, you, what am I doing here, you know? So I wrote a piece called Walk the Line, which also had one of my greatest moments as a flat track racer happened that day in practice. I, I went out in the wrong practice session, by the way. I was supposed to go out in 502 valves, and I accidentally went out in pro twins. So I get about – I'm getting going right into turn four, and all of a sudden, it sounded like a sprint car behind me, and it was Sean Bear on his number 32 KTM. Mm. He went by me like I was chained to a post, and he completely, he completely hammered me with pea gravel. I mean, he knocked the paint off me, my helmet, and drew blood on my neck. He hit me so hard and was gone. I, by the time I, I got, I'm going, in my eyes, I'm going quick. But by the time I opened my eyes, he was at the other end of the straightaway. He had just was like gone. I was like, holy cow, that was the most amazing thing I ever witnessed in my life. And in that article about that, um, I went back to the pits afterward. My neck was bleeding. And my daughter said, Dad, did you crash? And I said, no. I said, Sean Bear threw rocks at me. And she was about 10 years old. She said, what? He threw rocks at you? <laughs> was, I'm telling you. That kid was ready to walk over there and, and straighten that Sean Bear right out. She was angry. Yeah, of course. You know? I said, no, 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 no. It was my fault. I was bad. I was I went out in the wrong practice session. It was my bad. So she calmed down and I just laughed about it. But we had a great day together. You know, that's one of the great parts of racing. I take my daughter with me. And all of it is the reason, you know, why I write so I can leave these stories behind for her. And I also gotta tell you in the same breath. Nothing would have ever happened to me in in flat track racing if it wasn't for the kindness of Jake Shoemaker. Jake's been a great friend. You know, I one time wrote in a magazine article, when you ride sport bikes, you try to approach your limit. But when I ride flat track, I ride over the limit. I'm sliding the rear tire. I'm spinning the tire. You know, it's like all this crazy stuff. I wrote, I was over the limit. So one day I'm driving home. I wrote this article about being over the limit. And my phone rings. I look over and I see from the caller ID, it's Jake Shoemaker. So I was cool. Jake Shoemaker's calling. I grabbed the phone. And as soon as I push the, the button to get the call, I hear, do you know what your problem is? I'm like, uh-oh. And he says, <laughs> your problem is you're over the limit. That's why you keep crashing and getting hurt. You know, you're dumb. You know, he's like, lights me up one side of me, down the other, and then he hangs up on me. All right? And I'm like, holy cow. So I go to work. I tell my friend that. And he's like, you should call that guy back and set him straight. You know, what's his problem? I said, his problem? I said, that's a real friend there. A real friend will tell you when you're being dumb. Mm-hmm. Jake Shoemaker went out of his way. I said, he's a busy guy. He didn't have to call me up and yell at me. He was, and, and above it all, guess what? Jake was right. 
Yeah. You know? Yep. So, you know, Jake has been fantastic as far as helping me and making me aware. And that's where I got the idea. We went down to uh, Georgia last year and I was kind of, you know, driving the truck and watching him and watching him struggle that week. And that's where I wrote the article, Flat Tracking the Single Dad. He's got his hands full. We had him on, you know, a, a while back and just listen to his story. You know, he's very successful in his job, but he has, he said he has to be so he can go racing. And then he also, you know, raising his daughter. So my hat's off to a single dad like that doing what he loves and still, still there for his child. That's amazing. Let's talk about one that, that I want to know more about the racers cut. We talked before we started recording <laughs> and it's, it's kind of like from a, a barber's point of view. Can you explain that again to us? Yeah. Um, the, the racers cut, I noticed a lot of the racers get their hair cut before they go to a race, like Jake and Henry Wiles and various guys, they'll get their hair, you know, maybe it, maybe it gives them a little edge when they go to the racetrack. So I'm sitting in a barber shop one day and I kind of got this idea to write an article from the perspective of the barber, where the barber's cutting the guy's hair. He's never letting on that he's a fan of the guy in the chair who is the racer, who I patterned the guy after. There's three photographs in the article. There's a picture of Jake Shoemaker, Brad Baker, and Brian Smith. And they're the guys that kind of inspired the character. And the guy cuts the guy's hair without ever acknowledging that he knows who the racer is. And he talks about like how he's like, you know, how the racer, he's looking into his eyes and saying, hey, the guy you know, is trimming the guy's eyebrows and things. And he's saying like, you know. He has this angelic face, but yet he can be such a desperado on track, you know, banging and bumping and, you know, being, you know, knowing when to pull the trigger. And he goes through all the stuff. In the meanwhile, he never acknowledges that he knows who the guy is throughout the whole article. Mm, that's awesome. You also just recently did a, a piece on Henry Wiles, and and I thought it was interesting. Can you talk about that, your, your most recent one you just put out on Henry Wiles? Yeah, we've had um, – Henry, I did three articles this year. Um, the last one we went through kind of a season wrap up and what happened was, uh, as you know, up in New York, they had a, a, you know, the banquet, the, you know, the award ceremony, if you will. And they didn't kind of give Henry Wiles any credit for finishing second on an Indian. So I kind of wrote the opening bit that, you know, he deserved better than that basically, you know, and that's where it got started. And we talked about his career. Uh, a funny thing about that story, by the way, a couple of days after it went out, I got a text from Brian Smith and Brian Smith read that story and got a hold of me and told me that it was a, a typical racer story and it was, you know, on the money. And, uh, Brian Smith told me that I was kind of slowly but surely building a racer's diary of stories. But, um, you know, Henry did a terrific job. He's a great person to work with. He's an amazing person. As far as talking to him, he can tell you you know, everything in great detail. He has amazing compartmentalization skills. He can talk to you one minute, but on a motorcycle, run a race, come back and be at the same sentence when he gets back. It's amazing. So mm -hmm. how, how do you get these riders to open up to you like, like they do? They're confiding in you. How do you do that? The trick to, uh, there's not really a trick to it, but a lot of times I spend time. I'm not sure if it's because they can relate to me because I'm a racer to a certain degree. But a lot of times I spend time with people and, and let them talk at their own pace and they tell me things, you know, and you get, sometimes you get that magic moment. Like I had a, a conversation with Tommy Duma when I wrote the article on Tommy Duma and Tommy turned around and told me this amazing story where he was racing and he, you know, a racer crashed in front of him. He hit that bike, went flying through the air, going really fast. And he thought he broke his back. 
and he was he had his head taped to the stretcher, you know, to the board, and he got taken to uh, the hospital, and he was holding his girlfriend's hand, and he looked her in the eye and said, "Will you marry me?" Hmm. And it was it was this amazing moment. I couldn't believe he told me. I was like, "Wow!" And she said, "Yes," and he was like, "Yeah," and I was like, "Wow!" You know, it was romantic. It also made me laugh. I thought, man, he can, he knows how to close a deal, doesn't he? <laughs> you know, I was like, wow, Tommy, you're amazing. You know, and um, right. that's where sometimes you have that moment like that, and you you build on that whole entire moment. You know, Jackie Mitchell was telling me about crashing at Daytona, and then he also told me a great line where that it's not a lack of talent, but it's a lack of opportunity. Jackie Mitchell's article was amazing. The trick to Jackie Mitchell's article was we actually, I wrote the first version of it and I didn't like it. And I called him back and said, can I interview you again? And he was like, sure. And whenever I say to you, I need five minutes, it usually is like an hour and a half, how it works out. Mm -hmm. But, you know, usually once I get started talking with the racers, it usually turns out that way. You know, I've interviewed some amazing people, um, you know, Brad Baker, you know, uh, Davis Fisher, Oliver Brimley. You know, Jake Shoemaker, Henry Wilde, Sammy Halbert, Jared Meese, all these amazing guys I got a chance to work with. And they've all been fantastic. You know, Bugs Pearson. And they also worked with, you know, Bugs Pearson's team, you know, RJ Performance. Those guys, you know, Rick and Doug are fantastic. Dave Brown, David Brown's fantastic. That's a whole interesting story until itself, too, because that story about, you know, Robbie Pearson and RJ Performance, the initial part, I actually isn't even about Robbie, but it's actually about Doug and Rick and David Brown, because you realize that just because you're older in the sport of flat track, you might not be wearing your still shoe being fast anymore, but there's always a place for you in flat track. Mm-hmm. Whether you're driving a truck, whether you're working on a motorcycle, whether you're, you know, making a ham sandwich for the rider or doing something, there's always a place and a, you know, a need for people to help out in flat track, you know, driving the van, whatever it is. So I wrote the article about getting off the couch where it's a story about Rick and about Doug and about the team. And then later on, I got a chance to work with Robbie. Who's, who's awesome. Robbie's a great guy. Some great stories there about you know, him hanging out the ranch and when he's 12 years old, getting a chance to ride Nikki's XR 750 down to Walmart to go buy some stuff. You know, who does that? <laughs> who, rides a, right. Right. who rides an XR 750 when they're 12? You know what I mean? I was like, you did what? <laughs> And you hear these amazing stories that the riders give you, you know? Yep, absolutely. So you went to about 12 Grand Nationals this year out of the 18. You know, um, why do you do it? Why do you go to these races? Is it because you love the sport? Uh, Are you making money? Is this your profession? I mean, why do you do this? It's my passion. I love doing it. And I love being there for the riders. You know, if they want to talk and do a story, um, I love being there just to be around the sport. There's nothing I prefer more than being at a flat track race. When I go to a flat track race, it's like Christmas Day. I love it. I don't go make ahead. money out of business, by the way. It's it's strictly, um, you know, m- m- most of what I do is is exposure and I get a lot of help from American flat track and I have some great people helping me out. Like, you know, photographer, Steve Coltar or Jody Johnson. Uh, there's a whole lot of people who help me out and a lot of racers who give me their time. That's what really matters. Cause your, your time is your most valuable asset. Yeah. So I'm always very grateful for all the riders who do that for me. Cause without them, I wouldn't be doing anything. And, and we are too, you know, it, we're doing this kind of for the same reason you are is that, you know, to get the stories out there that aren't always available to everyone. So I, I really appreciate what you're doing for the average fan that's listening. How can they find your blog? 
My blog is ehorseman.blogspot.com. Again, it's ehorsemanblogspot.com. I'm usually up on Facebook. We're doing very well. We have about 70,000 views this year, considering we're just a small little blog with an obscure little name. And I just like to, you know, if anybody has stories or stuff they want to share, any racers out there, feel free to get a hold of me on Facebook or Instagram or wherever you find me. I'm always out there looking for a story and to have some fun. All right. So we can't end our episode without doing what we do at the end, and that's our rapid-fire questions. So I'll ask you a question. You tell me the first thing that comes to mind. Are you ready? Sure. What's your favorite interview? Oof, that's a hard question. Um, uh, that's that's really hard. It would either be um, Brad Brad Baker when I did um, The Man Who Beat Marquez, which, by the way, I'd like to make a movie out of, or it'd be the first interview with Brian Smith when I did um, The Gambler. Okay, good choices right there. I can't, uh, can't doubt you on either one of those. What's your favorite motorcycle you've ever ridden? And the Augusta Brutale. Okay. What's your favorite racetrack you've been to? Do you have a favorite racetrack? Favorite racetrack as a racer. I love going to grass. I love pea gravel racetrack. I love any racetrack. I mean, I've always wanted to, you know, as, a, as an NX road racer, I love all the tracks around the world. Mugella, Le Mans, Silverstone, Isla Man, Laguna Seca, Mid-Ohio. I love all the tracks. So I, I couldn't pick that either. All right. Which rider are you looking to cover next? Um, I'm not. There's. I'm. I'm trying to do something with Jake Johnson at some point. I'd like to do that. I'm working with Charlie right now. Um, I also like. To, would like to do more with. Um, you know, Robbie Pearson. Robbie's awesome. Um, I'm always looking to do more with Jake. You know, I, whenever opportunity presents itself, I try and grab the moment. You know, seize the bull by the horns and run with it. What are you most excited for in 2019? Looking forward to seeing Brian Smith on the on the Howard and racing Kawasaki is probably my number one thing. Can't wait to see that bike run. Did you know I wrote an article about Ricky Howard? And by the way, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, he's an about amazing the, man. Well, it's a funny article because it's the first time I kind of went outside of flat track. It's actually almost more of a sprint car article than the mm-hmm. flat track article. I got a chance to talk to Ricky and Ricky's dad, and it was a really amazing opportunity and a chance to get a look behind the scenes. Great guy. Yeah, he's he's uh, he's amazing. He's you know at the track he's pretty quiet, but um, I, I like I like what he does. He's he's very methodical. He thinks things through, and he uh, you know everything on that bike is precision and it's for a purpose. I really like what he's doing. So I look forward to him him and Brian getting team back up on on the green bike again. So. Who's going to win the championship in 2019? Mm. <laughs> well, that's that's a hard question. It's too early to say. There's a lot of strong contenders out there. Um, you know, obviously Jared Mee's got huge game. He has an awesome team in the pits. His wife is awesome. He's got everything going for him. You got Henry did a great year last year. You got you know Howard is coming back with a great bike this year. And there's a lot of really strong players. Uh, hard to say, you know, you got to kind of let the year play out. We'll see as time goes on. All right. And last, what we, the last thing we normally do is ask our riders or our mechanics or anybody if they want to say thanks to anybody. So here's your chance to say thanks to anyone you'd like. Right off the bat, I have to say a huge thank you to Jake Shoemaker for all he's done over the years and also his mom, Barb. A big thank you to the photographers like, uh, you know, Steve Coltar and Jody Johnson. 
Um, big thank you to the people who, you know, proofread my work like Sherry Beers, uh, Crystal Tong, Kara Reynolds. Um, huge thank you also to uh, the Vinagent, by the way, who I've written a couple articles on. Probably the best editor I've ever worked with, Paul DeOrleans. He's an amazing guy. And also thank you to Jackie LeBan. Uh, there's, a, there's so many people in flat track who've helped me out. Uh, I, you know, every rider has been helpful. Every team person has been helpful. American flat track, Michael Locke and all those guys, Chris Carr, they've all been helpful. You've guys been fantastic. So, I mean, I could talk all night about the people I owe thanks to. And also, by the way, huge thank you to my daughter, Olive, because my daughter, Olive, is why I do all this. That's awesome. I man. Michael, I really appreciate your time. It's good to get to know you, the man who does all this fantastic writing, and I look forward to our sit-down. I know that's going to happen soon. So uh, thanks for your time, yeah. and we'll, we'll see you at the track. Right on. Sounds good. Thanks, Scotty. That was pretty cool, Carter. It's always pretty cool to talk to somebody who loves flat track and covers it as well as he does. Well, I like how he gets these writers to open up, kind of like what we're doing, yep. but it's a little bit different. The way when you can write things, you can kind of set it and you can talk to them for a long time and then write what you like. So it's a little bit different than what we do, but these writers feel comfortable enough with them that they open up and they speak the truth. And then he puts it in a way that's entertaining for us to read and brings knowledge you know, about these writers. What I love about him and what he does is he's not afraid to go against the grain and say something that might be a little risque, something that you know uh, that people are sometimes scared to say, he's helped put it out there. Um, and the fact that these writers trust him enough to do that with their stories is uh, pretty cool. It's kind of like you know how how it's pretty awesome that they trust us to to tell their stories from the from the interview side when we talk to them on off the groove. Yeah, and and at the end when we're talking to him, he definitely wants to sit down and interview me. I'm looking forward to that. I know we've been talking about it since earlier this season. Make it happen. And we just, yeah, I got to make it happen. You know, um, I, I was really impressed with what he does. I'm not a reader. I don't like to read, but actually, I will sit down and read what he writes. You're not a reader, but I think the piece that he writes is going to be pretty badass about you. And I think that. Uh, he, I mean, even the stuff he was, the question, the initial questions he was asking you, I, I could tell that he's going to write some some pretty good stuff about you, man. So make the time for Lawless. Let's do that soon because I want to read that. I, sh- I sure will. I just, you know, I don't know if we have to meet in person or if we can maybe do it on Skype or maybe just a phone call. I'm sure he can He can work with you. So that's it. Three that's episodes. That's a long weekend. Three episodes in three days. So I don't know if we want to do that every weekend because it's a lot Ooh. of work. The interviews themselves were entertaining, but you know, editing that stuff, it's it's tedious, but you know. So you're not you didn't sleep at all this weekend, did you? What's sleep? What's that mean? I don't know. I think that's what you do between the when the sun goes down and before the sun comes up. No. That's what you're supposed to do. No. No sleep. Partner. What day? Three shows. Yeah. Three days. We did it. Congratulations. We you made did it. it. We both did it, dude. What are you talking about? You interviewed everybody. Yeah, that's the easy part. Uh, sometimes. I don't know if I can do it. Okay. I'd what rather... are we doing next week? <laughs> We're doing eight interviews in two days. Stop it. I'm hanging up right now. <laughs> I don't know. We might take a week off. No. No, we're not taking that's a week the, off. That's not how we roll. Never. So next week, I think it's going to be the episode that everybody's been waiting for. Okay. Keep talking. Let's talk to the goon right before Christmas. What do you think? I think if he'll answer your call, 
Let's do it. Let's go. Uh, all you Goonies out there. Yeah. I just made up a term for all the people who are Goon fans. They're Goonies. Now you're dating yourself. Yeah. What else we need? Some RC Cola. Oh, boy. Pop, some Pop Rocks. Some Pop Rocks. What else? And Slap bracelets. Oh. Yeah. Velcro wallets. Nintendo. Atari. All right. You know, what about All the Kong? kids are like, what the, hell's that? what the hell is that? Uh, the Goon next week. Tune in, folks. You don't want to miss this one. Let's do it. Everybody stay safe. Have a good week. We'll talk to you on Friday. Peace. Smash that like button. Oh, yeah, Tell you your get your line. Get your Give line in. Get your line in. Say it. Smash that like button. Smash that like button. Tag all your friends. Take all your friends. Give us a follow. <laughs> Whatever you want to do. I'm delirious I after st- three episodes, dude. I still I still don't do the Facebook thing, so I don't know what I'm talking about. You don't know what you're talking about, but you sound like you uh-uh. do. Smash that like button. Give okay. us a follow. Yep. Tell all your friends about Off the Group. Perfect. That's going there. All right. Let's go. See you next week. Mm-hmm.